All right, good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Job, as Pastor Tim mentioned. Uh, today we'll look at this book, which some scholars think might be the oldest book of the Bible. Job is one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament, which means that like other wisdom books, like Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, uh, it offers us guidance on how to live successfully from God's perspective. It is not about living successfully by the standards of others, because God's standard is the one that ultimately matters. Job can be divided into three parts. The first part is covered in chapters 1 and 2, and it introduces us to the characters of this story. The second part is in chapters 3 to 37, and that shows us the interaction between Job and his friends. And the third part shows us God's response to Job and his friends. And we see this in chapters 38 to 42. The first part is extremely important for understanding the whole book, because in it we are introduced to the main characters of this story. So we will take our time going through it. So please bear with me. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In this verse, we are introduced to Job as a pious and righteous man. Verse 2, there, was born, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Ten children. It's a lot. But otherwise, the number ten in Jewish culture would have represented completeness or perfection. Remember the ten plagues on Egypt and the ten commandments. So in other words, the text is telling us that Job had the perfect family. Verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Not only did he have the perfect family, but he was also very prosperous and rich. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So, perfect family, wealthy, and they also got along with each other. Verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, speaking of his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This verse shows us Job's reverence in that he is sacrificing for his children in case they have sinned against God. So right out of the gate in the first five verses we see a righteous man, we see that he has a perfect family, we see that he is wealthy, and we see that he fears God. Now let's look at the rest of the characters in this story. Let's read verses 6 to 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
Okay, let's stop here for a moment. I, I want us to see that it is God who first mentions Job. Now this might seem like a trivial detail, but it's very important because so many times when people retell the story of Job, or when they are trying to attack God because of the story of Job, they make it seem as if Satan draws God in. But this is not the case. The text clearly shows that God is the one who first mentions Job, and that God is fully in control. Also, let's bear in mind that God's description of Job does not mean that he was perfect and without any sin. Only Jesus is without sin. This is like David being described in Acts 13.22 as being a man after God's heart. We all know that David was not perfect, although a murderer and an adulterer. David was also a man of faith, and who, who loved God's law and was sincere in his repentance. So the fact that God describes Job as blameless and upright does not mean that Job was sinless. Let's pick up at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, might be helpful to point out here that Satan's name means the adversary. And uh, we see in this passage that he's being the adversary of both God and Job. Satan's words imply that God is not worthy of worship for his own sake, but only for the blessings that he gives to his people. Satan also accuses Job of being a hypocrite who is only worshiping God because of the good that he receives from God and expects Job to curse God to his face if these Blessings are withdrawn. So Satan is clearly acting in accordance with his character when he accuses Job. God allows Satan to take away Job's blessings um, without harming Job himself. Verses 13 to 22 show us what happens to Job and his response. But first let's look at what happens to Job in verses 13 to 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job gets these reports one after the other. First, his livestock representing his wealth is gone. Then his servants, which represent his status, is gone. And finally, the perfect family he once had is gone. Let's look at Job's response in verses 20 to 22. Verse 20. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. In that culture, it was common for people to tear their robes and to shave their heads to express grief. But to worship God in the midst of grief is perhaps one of the qualities that sets Job apart from others. Verse 21, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Instead of cursing God, Job worships God. Job's trials do not end here. This was just his first trial. The second trial in chapter 2 begins in the same way the first one did in chapter 1, verse 6. God again is the one who initiates and brings up Job's name. This time Satan suggests that if Job's health is affected, then he will curse God to his face. God allows Satan to afflict Job's health, but not to take his life. Let's read verses 7 to 10 in chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this... Job did not sin with his lips. If you notice, Job's wife is asking him to do the very thing Satan wants him to do, which is to curse God. We need to remember, however, that neither Job, nor his wife, nor his friends in the coming section are aware of what's happening behind the scenes. Only we, as the readers of the text, are aware of the backstory between God and Satan. Unfortunately, and it's sadly true, that the attitude of Job's wife is not too uncommon among many who call themselves believers. How many have thought of themselves as believers only to run out on God and on the church when tragedy strikes? Their attitude is pretty much, if God's not going to be good to me by giving me good things, good health, good family, then I do not need Him in my life. But this is a misunderstanding of the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God never promised that Christians will never experience trouble. We as believers will experience pain and suffering this side of the grave. But we will also experience God's comfort along with that pain and suffering. That is how Christians live their lives. That's how the Christian life works. If you are here this morning experiencing trials and suffering, let me offer you the takeaway message of this book. God is worth knowing and is worthy of worship even when He allows suffering in our lives. Let me say that again. God is worth knowing and is worthy of worship even when He allows suffering in our lives. Let's look at the rest of the story to see how this message is presented. Verses 11 to 13 introduce us to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who come to comfort him. Verse 13 says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, 
and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. As we read on, we will discover that this was one of the best things they did to comfort him. Because as soon as they opened their mouths, it all went downhill in a hurry. The end of chapter 2 brings us to the end of the first part of the book. In this section, we saw Job going from being the greatest of all the people of the East to being the least. The second section of the book, chapters 3 to 37, gives us three rounds of discussion between Job and his friends. This section begins with Job lamenting his birth in chapter 3. And in response to Job's lament, the three friends take it upon themselves to start offering their opinions as to why they think this must be happening to Job. This section of the book is almost like a formal debate. So we have Eliphaz speaking, and then Job responds. Bildad speaks, and then Job responds. Zophar speaks, and then Job responds. This cycle repeats three times, but in the third round, a young friend, uh, another friend by the name of Elihu, takes Zophar's place. Eliphaz is the first to respond. In his mind, what Job is experiencing must be the result of his sin. For example, in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Very simply, Eliphaz is saying that nothing happens to innocent and upright people. And when and what a man sows, that he ultimately reaps. His advice, chapter 5, verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. As we see here with Eliphaz, and as we will see with Job's other friends, there's much truth in their speeches. There's nothing wrong with us committing our cause to God. But the issue is that they are not able to correctly diagnose the root of these trials. In the second round of discussions, Eliphaz intensifies his accusation by claiming that Job does not fear God. He says in chapter 15, verse 4, But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. In the third round of discussions, he doubles down his attacks with greater fury. Chapter 22, verse 5, Eliphaz says, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Bildad is the second debater. His thinking is not much different than that of Eliphaz. In chapter 8, verse 4 to 6, Bildad says to Job, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Later on, Bildad also intensifies his accusation by saying that Job is being punished for his wickedness. For Bildad, like Eliphaz, this is an open and shut case. Job is sinful and wicked, which brought about his suffering, and therefore he needs to repent. And Zophar pretty much says the same thing as the other two. It might surprise us, however, to realize that this attitude was the same in New Testament times, even among the disciples of Jesus. We see this in the disciples' response to the way Jesus answered the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verses 23 to 26. We read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why were the disciples astonished? Well, because like Job's friends, they judged according to appearances and according to how they thought God must judge. The disciples' attitude and the attitude of Job's friends are really two sides to the same coin. Whereas the disciples thought that wealth and prosperity were signs of God's approval, Job's friends thought that the loss of wealth and poverty were the signs of God's disapproval and punishment. The disciples also thought that sickness was the result of sin. In, in the Gospel of John chapter 9, when they walked past a blind man, they asked Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer, Neither. It's not this man's sin or his parents. But it is so that the works of God should be revealed in him. So let's not be too hard on Job's friends, but at the same time, let's remember that it is God himself who declares Job righteous. Unlike the disciples who had the privilege of being with Jesus and the advantage of Jesus correcting their misunderstandings, Job had to figure out how to respond to this situation and specifically how to respond to his accusers. Job never curses God. Also, the majority of what he said in response to his accusers shows his unwavering faith and trust in God. However, his discussions with his friends do reveal that Job's understanding of God is lacking. For example, in chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, he says, It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Here Job is clearly showing that he doubts God's justice. By claiming that God is seemingly indifferent to the suffering of the wicked and the innocent alike. Job even calls God his adversary in chapter 16 verse 9 and again in chapter 31 verse 35. Later on in chapter 31, Job describes how he would approach God if he were to be put on trial. He says in chapter 31, verse 37, I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Claiming that God is his adversary shows that Job does not know God's character. Because Job seems to think that God is unfairly punishing him. This is a mistake on Job's part. Even when we do not know why bad things are happening to us, we should never doubt God's goodness and justice. Also, his overconfident words about approaching God like a prince, as he defends his case, are unwarranted. Because man's pride has no place before God. Job's words will not go unanswered. But before we see how God responds to Job, let's look at the final debater, Elihu. Elihu is a very interesting character. He's angry at both Job and his three friends. At times, he sounds very similar to the three friends. And at other times, he seems to agree that Job is righteous. But he has words of rebuke for Job's presumptuous attitude that God somehow owes him a trouble-free life because he is upright and righteous. He seems to be treading a very 
fine line, which is part of what makes him a difficult character to understand and why different commentators are somewhat divided on what to make of him. Let's look at one of the speeches that shows this careful balance. Please turn with me to chapter 36. We'll read verses 7 to 11. Here, this is Elihu speaking and speaking about God. So he said, God, he does not allow, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Now, if he were to stop here, he would sound exactly like the other three friends. But he keeps going. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work, that their transgression and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. He's simply saying that when the righteous suffer, they don't suffer for judgment, but they suffer, but it's for instruction. That's the purpose of the suffering in their lives. This is clear when he says that if the righteous open their ears and they, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. God's purpose is to bless his people by teaching them. And this is a grace, because God does not owe that to anyone. In His grace, God sometimes chooses to teach us, not by shielding us from pain, but by allowing pain to come into our lives. Therefore, Elihu serves as a transition between the long-winded debates of the previous 27 chapters and, the come, and God coming to set the record straight. God's response is recorded in chapters 38 to 41. This begins the third and final part of the book of Job. It is important to note that God's response is primarily done in the form of questions and not answers, and that it is done primarily, directed primarily towards Job. Let's read chapter 38, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God is clearly rebuking Job here for some of the words that he uttered. He also continues with a barrage of questions demonstrating his absolute power and perfect knowledge over every aspect of creation. It is really unfortunate that we do not have time to read these chapters in their entirety because if we did, we would definitely sense the sentiment that they try to convey. By the continuous onslaught of questions that God directs towards Job, he basically cuts Job down to size. When we read these chapters, we too very quickly realize who we are and who God is. God's many questions serve to show us that God is wholly other. God's questions reveal to us that no human is ever in a position to judge God. God is the supreme judge and is to be judged by no one. God's response accomplishes the desired outcome. In, chap in, in the chapters of this third and final section... Job speaks only twice. In chapter 40, Job responds by promising to be silent because he is brought to the point of realizing how small he is and how big God is. 
The second time Job speaks reveals that God has successfully accomplished what he set out to do by allowing these misfortunes to come upon Job. In chapter 42, verses 2 to 6, Job says, speaking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Here we see God's true purpose. Ultimately, this was about Job getting to know God, getting to truly know God. Before these calamities came his way, Job clearly feared God, but he did not really know God. This leads to Job repenting of any careless word he uttered. We have to remember that God knows the end from the beginning. This was never about a bet or a wager between God and Satan, as some people claim. Rather, God used Satan and allowed these things to happen so that Job would know God, rather than just know about God. Job's trials, therefore, accomplished two things. First, Job now came to have intimate knowledge of God and a correct understanding of God's character. Second, his trials brought to the surface a pride issue that Job himself was not aware of. And this is the reason Job repents before God. God's way of dealing with pride in believers is, not, is consistent and is not just limited to the story of Job, by the way. This is the experience of the Apostle Paul as well, who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, which Paul had described in the passage prior, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, or to keep me from becoming proud. Other translations translated to keep